Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret of the dead come back? One, two, buckle my shoe by Nugent Barker. It was open. I had seen it all the time, seen it without realising exactly what it was. I mean, seen just its existence and not its purpose. For who would expect a box like that to contain chalks all of the same colour? After tinkling my bell for some time, I dropped it on the table and sat there facing the open cupboard and toying with my chalks, and presently I wanted a sheet of paper to write on. I found it in the drawer beside me, an exercise book. I pulled up my chair, spread my elbows, and wrote at once in viridian green on a new page. One, two, buckle my shoe. Three, four, knock at the door. Five, six, pick up sticks. Seven, eight, lay them straight. Nine, ten, a fine fat hen. Eleven, twelve, dig and delve. You remember that nursery rhyme? Till then, I'd forgotten it. I used to think it was full of sense, even when taken in a lump, and while I was sitting at the table, looking across it into the open-lighted cupboard and thinking over the words that I had just written down, I saw the mouse. At the back of the cupboard, against the wall, I saw a mouse hole, clearly the source of the tinkling. While I watched, two black, shiny eyes appeared, and the furry shadow glided along the floor of the cupboard and into the room where it took to moving in fits and starts. "'Hi there! What are you up to, you little beggar?' I called out, starting off in pursuit and brandishing one of my heavy walking shoes, but not with any serious purpose. You know I'd never hit a creature, don't you? I simply followed the mouse across the room as far as the chest of drawers, and there I found a pair of shoes on the floor, kicked off into the corner between the chest and the wall. One, two, buckle my shoe.' Harlock had dropped into his gentlest voice. They did have buckles on them. Buckles as bright as silver. So I put on the shoes and I buckled them up, and found that in them I could walk as stealthily as a cat. I prowled with such gentleness over the room that I hardly made a candle quiver, and presently I stopped in front of the narrow door, the door that I haven't yet told you about. You see it the moment you enter the room— a rather low and narrow door on the far side of the table, but you don't really see it until later when you're standing right in front of it looking at the little knocker, the kind that you sometimes see on the study door in a vicarage. Three, four, knock at the door. I knocked at the door. Come in, called an incredibly high-pitched, thin and windy voice. I went in, shutting the door behind me. At this point, Harlock jumped to his feet and proposed loudly a round of drinks. He switched on a blaze of light, and we heard him boiling his electric kettle behind our backs. All that I could see at first, he continued in a steady voice a minute or so after he had returned to his chair, and while we were still sipping our whiskey toddies in the restored firelight, was a regiment of moonbeams, slanting into the room through uncurtained lattice windows, and a man facing me across the floor, motionless, waiting. Myself, in a mirror. What a fool one feels, when one's two selves are brought thus face to face, each of them scared of the other. The first movement, the sudden tentative trial, and this spell is broken, and you turn eagerly to look for the thing that you expect to find, 
I saw her at hand, lying on her large bed, slowly kneading the eiderdown beneath her with her fat fingers, pulling in her lips, watching me with her small eyes. And the floor and the bed and the woman were patterned with lattice windows. The bars of shadow and light showed me her rounded, massive bulk to perfection. Five, six, pick up sticks. And where do you think I found them? Why, on the bed itself, of course. A couple of bedstuffs. Do you know what a bedstuff is? It's a loose cross piece of antique bedsteads, often used as a handy weapon. I took them from the head and foot of the bed, and while I was doing so, the face of my hostess was twisting about with a kind of cringing mock terror. Five, six, pick up sticks. Seven, eight, lay them straight. I remember that while I was wielding my cudgels, I glanced in the mirror and saw the shadows of the window bars slipping along them. Lay them straight, lay them straight. Seven, eight, lay them straight. I laid them, good and straight. Once I felt a shiver in my arm, but I'd hit the ceiling. As soon as I had satisfied myself that the flutters of her heart had ceased, I can still feel her wrist between my finger and thumb, you know. I dropped my bedstuffs for good and hurried off to open one of the two other doors in the room. The garden door, I fancied the children had called it. How breathless was the scene through the garden door. I held my breath and gazed all over the great neglected garden. Then I returned to the woman and picked her up. And I swear she was no heavier than a puffball. But what an armful she made. What an armful. What a fine fat hen. I carried her into the garden and over the rank grass and plunged with her into the cluster of weed beyond. I'd seen it through the garden door, shimmering in the moonlight. The stuff stood higher than my head and was here in great profusion, a forest of weed. I don't know how long I took to reach my destination, probably not very long, but when you're pretending to be a pirate or something of that kind, carrying your booty into the depths of the woods to bury it, well... You don't care at all how long you take to reach the burial place. I came upon it in a moment, without warning, a sudden breaking from the weed into broad moonlight. This is the place, I remember saying. This is the spot they've chosen. A spade lay ready to my hand, and fluff from the surrounding weed was drifting and settling all the while to the tumbled earth. Eleven, twelve, dig and delve. I put down my burden and took up the spade, and in that spot I dug and delved. When I came out of the weed, said Harlock, in his softest voice, I saw that the feathers were sticking to my clothes like splashes of plaster. The fire had burnt low. We could scarcely see each other's faces, and only his voice was holding our little group together. And I think it was the sight of those feathers, he said, that sent me tearing back in a panic over the lawn, slapping my clothes all the time. Escape! I had no other thought but that. The children's rhyme had worked its way with me. Escape from the house and the clump of weed and the infamous thing that I had buried there. I ran through the bedroom and into the Viridian nursery and kicked off the buckled shoes, kicked them into the corner, as all the others had done. And while I was sitting on the bed, putting on my walking shoes and looking towards the open cupboard, I saw the mouse returning to his hole beside the little bell. What was the use of my shutting the cupboard door with a bang? The Viridian room hardly echoed to it, and even the loudest noise would not have convinced me that in that silent house 
Such a sudden crash must certainly have brought things to an end. I even took steps to prove to my satisfaction that I was right. I ran back into the bedroom, back into all those spears of moonlight, and then I wish I had never opened the garden door again. It, it was not what I actually saw, but what I knew I would see if I stayed for more than a very few moments. Looking across the wild moonlit grass, I saw at least a shaking in the tops of the weed. And it wasn't the wind, you know. The movement was working its way towards me, slowly, jerkily, inch by inch. Fear, of course, won in the end. It sent me racing back into the depths of the house, where I caught my head a whack against the ceiling of the living room. But the lamp was out. She had put it out. The clock was thumping loudly, and I was scared to death that she might find me there before I got away. I hardly know how I got away in time. Hunting for the door, plunging through the puffballs, sprinting over the poppy field. Have you ever seen poppies by moonlight? Sanity, that's what I was after. Sanity and the breath of the sea. Well, there was no breath. The wind was dead. There were no waves. But I scooped up the water in my two hands and cooled the bump on my head, and after that, I went back to the foreshore and watched the house until I saw her light gleaming again. Harlock stared at the dying fire. I suppose I ought to have known it at once, he said, as if to himself, especially from a distance. No, that the spot was haunted, I mean. It was there, staring me in the face, the queer shape, the mist of puffballs, the heavy thatch, the very set of the trees. Then, one of us, softly, as if to take the edge of the silence that followed, ventured a remark. I suppose the real ghost was the children. She was not, Harlock burst. She was something far worse than that. Nothing further was said while we watched our host returning his picture to the remote corner. So that was One to Buckle My Shoe by Nugent Barker, and it was recommended for me to read by Forrest Rogers, who also recommended a Robert Aikman story, which I haven't done yet, so we know what kind of stories he likes. It was a short one. I've done quite a lot of long stories, so it's about time. I don't actually... Sometimes I pick a short story because of the time I have available, and I guess that was what was happening at the moment as well. But it wasn't a bad one. I got this from an edition reprinted by Tartarus Books from Leyburn in North Yorkshire, and they print some lovely, lovely books. Um, I've got an Arthur Mackham book by them as well, and they, the anthology is called Written With My Left Hand. I know if you go to Watkins Books in London, which is, if I ever go to London, which I do, this is, I always head to Watkins and spend too much money there, but they're a fantastic shop of, of esoteric and uh, this kind of thing. They have all sorts of stuff. Um, but yeah, they've got a full collection of the uh, Tartarus books. Some of the other bookshops in London do as well, but they're beautiful editions and limited. I think this was a, a print run of 300 copies, hardbound, very nicely done. Eugene Barker was active between 1888 and 1955 when he died, but he's not one of those guys that a lot isn't known about. So in, in the book written with my left hand in the anthology, there are 21 stories, weird tales, ghost stories. And this appears to be all that he ever wrote. The anthology written with my left hand was published in London 
as, as a grouping together in 1951. I think his first stories were in 1928. And he wrote a story called Wesso, and uh, that got reprinted in the best British short stories of 1929. And the volume itself was dedicated to Nugent Barker, and the, the notes there are some of the few biographical details we have about him, so I'm just going to read what they put in that. There's a copy of this in the Tartarus edition. Barker Nugent, educated at Cheltenham College, began life as a black and white artist, that is, he paints in black and white, in 1914, the doctors failed to pass him into the army on account of his eyes. He has recently devoted himself entirely to literature. He comes from one of the oldest Irish families, the Nugents of Westmeath, and he lives in London. That was in 1929. Another interesting fact is in the late 1920s, Nugent Barker lived at 16 Tite Street in Chelsea in London, in the very house where Oscar Wilde had lived just before his infamous trials. And he wrote uh, Wesso, this story in 1928, which is his first to get published. And he claimed that in the house he'd uh, met the ghost of the American artist James McNeil Whistler at midnight in his garden. Now, I'm very fond of Whistler's work. I remember many years ago going to Washington, D.C., and the, the art gallery there has a lot of Whistler's stuff, so it's very, very good. I'm not really clear... If you listen to this story, it, it appears to be set in a one of these gentlemen's rooms, and you can imagine the M.R. James situation where rather nice chaps are drinking whiskey toddies in this case rather than port round a blazing fire, just where you'd want to be, to be honest. I imagine that the chairs are leather and the room is shelved with uh, antique books and there is the odd dusty bust of some professor or somebody, or possibly a composer and a grandfather clock may even be a cat. I see it as a tabby. Anyway, we're sitting, there's a rug, of course. We're sitting around there listening as, as each of us tells a story. And the anonymous narrator, who we may take as Nugent Barker himself, tells this story, which is fairy tale like I think fairy tale because we have the, you know, one, two, buckle my shoe rhyme. And uh, that, they're always weird, those, aren't they? I was recently watching an episode of Sapphire and Steel uh, from the 19... 80s and I got it on DVD and uh, it, it, it starts off with uh, nursery rhymes the uh, ring a ring a rosy one I think, uh, tissue a tissue we all fall down, so there is something kind of evocative it got, it's all very 17th century, you know all of those things they always remind me of the 1600s and recently you know I'd been to Salem in Massachusetts and then I happened to be in Lancaster in England and I went to the witch exhibitions in both of those cities. So I'm, I'm pretty uh, 1600 did up. I'm feeling all Nathaniel Hawthorne, he wrote some stories about that. If, if you haven't heard my young Goodman Brown there, uh, it's on the channel. So yeah, a, a weird tale. So is it a dream he's recounting or is he actually saying he finds himself in this room and in this house, this weird a Viridian nursery? What's he doing in the nursery as a grown man? Why is it Viridian, which is a lovely word for green? And uh, it is dreamlike. We remember in those years, we have Kafka writing, you know, the metamorphosis story about the guy who gets sent into a beetle. In German, we have Gustav Meyrink and Bruno Schulz. So there is this surreal, and of course, there's the surrealists in the, active in the 1920s when it's all about composing things from your subconscious, which is a development, I suppose, of 
romanticism. So romanticism is about turning it back on craft and turning it back on. I'm not saying he has, but in sources of inspiration, don't plan things, wait for things to arise. And of course we have Freud there and the unconscious and there's all this movement about, in Western culture, about things that come up from the unconscious which aren't necessarily rational. Craft is used to shape them. If he just kind of blurted out a dream, we would have been a bit bored, I think. But he uses his craft to to create suspense and how he does it. If you know in a film, they sometimes have a ticking clock. Or, 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 and we, we, we've done this. All people who write stories do this. But this is the rhyme itself, isn't it? We know what the next verse is. We're waiting for the next verse and the next action that arises from it. And this creates a suspense. So what happened? Um, the rhyme led him through to a room where he found some kind of monster. And that is, you know, you do stories and you, that one reminds you of another. There is a story on the channel called uh, Back on the Old Track by Sam Hinks, which is, Hicks rather, which is a um, modern story. But that is about a monstrous family that have monstrous things in the backwoods. So it's not quite the same, but there is something monstrous. I suspect it's the devouring mother, to be fair. But she's, she dies and he buries her amongst the weeds in the moonlit garden. You could have a field day interpreting this from a psychoanalytical point of view, particularly a Jungian point of view, but um, let's have a go. So basically he is terrified of the devouring mother and he wants to bury her. She is mindless, she is devouring, she is a threat to his very existence. And he buries her in the moonlit garden, which represents his subconscious, represents him hiding something. But the weeds are there and the weeds represent the fact that things arise, you know, in a garden, things grow. You bury them, but the weeds feed on them and then he gets the seeds, the thistle heads of the weeds and he's terrified by them because basically what's happened, he's tried to bury this nightmarish fear of being consumed by this monstrous female. But the seeds getting on him show that you can't keep it down. It will rise up and it will propagate. And so there we go. So it's basically, I would analyse it from that point of view. And I would say to him, Mr. Barker, I think we need to see each other on a weekly basis for an hour a session. And that will be £100 a session. But I do believe it will do you good. And perhaps we may need to go up to twice weekly. Thank you. Uh, checks to Tony Walker, please. There you go. So I was going to say, I, I've, I've got actually something urgent come up this morning in my real life. So this is going to be a short one. But but I wanted to say something about the podcast goes out in three main formats. So the first one is audio only. And you get that through Spotify and Apple and Google Podcasts and Podchaser and all the different ones, right? And that gets about 10,000 listens a week, which is amazing. Very grateful for that. And then it goes out on YouTube repurposed. Not actually the same because uh, the schedule of how I set things up is different. I, they're not actually, they don't mirror each other exactly. But basically they're the same thing, the podcast and the commentary that goes out on YouTube. And that gets a lot of, uh, you know, every episode will get probably about 3,000. Some go up to like 13,000. And that's how I work out whether it's uh, something I should be doing more of or less of. And I have ideas about that now, you know, after about nearly three years of doing this. And then the third channel is to my 
paid supporters. And so they get it to download, they get the MP3, and they get it uh, ad-free. And so we'll come on to ads. So YouTube serves the podcast with ads, and they pay me a little bit. So that's why I like YouTube. You can upgrade to uh, upgrade your subscription on YouTube, such as I have, so you don't see any ads. And they pay me a little bit of that as well. I don't know how that works out, you know, comparably, whether I get more for... But anyway, it's hard to work out. Now, for nearly three years, the, the audio podcasts have not had ads on them at all. So basically, they're just a cost to me. And I've recently changed podcast hosts to Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout, very happy with them. And they allow me to insert ads into the podcast version, the audio version. And that pays about roughly about 16 I mean, euros, dollars and pounds are almost equivalent now. But so say about $16, 16 pounds, 16 euros. Not altogether, just one of those. A month, yeah. And so that pays for my hosting. And uh, those ads do. So that's only been going on about two, three weeks. And I'm having complaints and, and reviews on Apple to say, oh, it's excellent, but these ads. Now let's have a think about that. Nothing. So my first instinct is, well, take the ads off. Oh, no, I don't want to lose any of the 10,000 listeners I've got, you know, and you can see why I'd say that. But nothing is cost free. You think that Facebook's cost free. No, it's not. They're taking your data and selling it to advertisers. Same with Google. When you when you watch your TV, there are ads on it, you know, and something is paid for and nothing is free. You know, and I work in the health service, which is free at the point of use, but it's not free because we pay hundreds of pounds in tax, uh, national insurance every month. So nothing is free. And even if you don't pay for your, your um, prescriptions, okay, so I'm getting into health, you, you've either paid for them through your taxes up until that point and you've got to a certain age, or your fellow citizens are paying for them, okay? And that's, that's what we decide as a country we want to do. So nothing is free. If I do a podcast episode, particularly a long one, it'll take me a day sometimes long ones, two days to produce. So the ads are some kind of recompense for that. So of those 10,000 people, I have 190 Patreons, I have about 40 on Substack and about um, 80 YouTube members. So let's leave YouTube out of it. So I have, uh, say, about 200-ish supporters, 250, not quite, supporters who, who contribute and they get it ad-free. But there's 10,000 people listening. And so very few people actually give me anything for this work. And that's fine. That's your choice. Some people don't have the means to do it totally. And it is available for you for free. But the cost of that is I have to run ads. Now, if you don't like that, I'm really sorry, but you understand my time is worth something. And my expertise and my, my hot software, my microphones, my computers is worth something. So my proposal is this. Either put up with the ads because you don't want to support it in any other way, and that's totally up to you. Or, or, or go and listen to another podcast, and that's totally up to you. Or you can pay a dollar, pound, dollar a month on Patreon. I'll put a link. There's a link in the show notes. And you get all the, all the stories ad-free that you can download, listen to at your leisure, or you can stream 
from Patreon. No ads. And you get all the back catalogue. This is for the $1 of publicly available stories, which is about 200 stories. So that is 25 cents, 25p a week. Now, if you're going to get your knickers in a twist about that, I don't want to pay 25 cents a week. Fine. That's fine. And I don't want to hear ads. Well, that's not fine because I have to value myself. So there we are. That's me being militant and coming out and saying it. And of those 10,000, I was saying this to Sheila and I said to Sheila, oh God, I might lose some listeners. And she said, they're not worth anything to you, Tony. They do not contribute. So if you lose 3,000 people who give you nothing, you're no worse off. So there we are. That's probably the most strident I've been. But my initial reaction was, I was lying awake thinking about this, you know. And my, li- my initial reaction was to say, oh, well, I don't want to lose. I better take the ads off. And then I had to think about it and buoyed up by Sheila, who is a battler, to be fair. And I think that's right. So either enjoy the podcast with the ads as the fee for the stories or shell out and pay me 25 cents a week and get them ad-free to download 200 plus stories. Come on, that's a deal. You could, Listen, you could, I'm not suggesting you do this, but you could pay $1, spend the week downloading 200 stories and have enough stories to listen to for the rest of the year for $1. How about that? Patreon, sign up now. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody so dies, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back? 